You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 7 of Turning to the Mystics. I'm here with Jim and Corey, and we're excited to learn about our mystic for Season 7. So, Jim, will you welcome, (laughs) and will you introduce us to our Season 7 mystic? Yes, I'm, I'm pleased to resume our explorations together in this series and the podcast. And so what we're going to be doing now, beginning season seven, is turning to the mystic Meister Eckhart. And uh, we'll be exploring Eckhart the same way I did the other mystics. And uh, I'll be reading passages and then reflect on the passages with practical examples to make the teachings as accessible as possible uh, in the daily living of our life. And uh, then as we're trying to move back and forth between a man mystic and a woman mystic, then in season eight, we'll do Mictelda Magberg uh, and uh, as a woman mystic. And so that'll be our next pair of a man and a woman uh, mystic in, these, in this season and the one that follows. Wonderful. So in this session, we'll be able to learn a little bit more about Meister Eckhart before you get into his teaching. And so just wondering who was this Meister, Meister Eckhart? Who was he historically? So to begin first, like we always try to do, is to begin with who he was historically, because that helps us understand who he is spiritually. That's the autobiographical foundations of his awakening and what he taught. Uh, Meister Eckhart was born in Germany in the year uh, 1260, where he spent his life until his death uh, at age 68 years old in 1328, Germany. As a, as a young man, he entered uh, the Dominican order, a uh, religious order within the church, so he took the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And the Dominican order is known as the order of preachers, that their ministry is preaching and also learning, education and preaching. So he joins the Dominican order it's also record that he studied at the University of Paris, which uh, and at this time was one of the great Christian learning centers in Europe. And then he taught a theology at the University of Paris. And also, which gives a sense of the esteem that he was held in at the time, he held the chair in theology that was held by his predecessor, Dominican, St. Thomas Aquinas, who was the author of the Summa Theologica. When he, when he left the, uh, the academy, the academic world, uh, he continued on in more of an emphasis. He continued to do writings. And by the way, at the University of Paris uh, are his Latin writings, which are uh, scripture commentaries. And when we, later when we talk about sources, because where you can read those if you want, it's important to keep them in mind when you read the German, the mystical writings. He focuses, he spends time in Strasbourg. He gives the sermons in German to the nuns, the Dominican nuns in Strasbourg. And that's where we get his German works, which are really his mystical works. And the nuns were so moved 
by the depth and beauty of his teachings. They had no tape recorders recording, so they took very careful notes. And then they got together and put together a single, what they all agreed was the closest possible to his actual sermon. So that's how we have his sermons. Mm. It was through the nuns, otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't have them at all. Like a work of love from the nuns. It was a, wor it was a work of love, which then gave him to the church, to the contemplative church, mm. you know, carried it forward through the centuries, through time. And uh, so what we see then are two meanings to the word meister, meaning master. One master is an academic sense, like we would say today, maybe like Dr. Eckhart or Professor Eckhart. But also, and what this concerns us in the podcast is, he's a spiritual master. He's one of the mystic teachers that we turn to uh, for guidance, like the master of the interior life, Eckhart. And so he's really a kind of, uh, we might say then, a mystically awakened theologian. Mm who saw the mystical dimensions of what's revealed to us in the scriptures and in the tradition and translates it for us into a spiritual path of mystical awakening, which was the heart of his teachings, I guess we could say. Jim, can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be a Dominican? In the religious orders in the church, you, you had the, the monastic orders, the Benedictine cloistered orders, the Karma and so on. But then also you had these orders where there was a, a ministry that was a life of the, of, of the evangelical consuls, poverty, chastity, and obedience, like committed discipleship to the vows. And then a ministry, so for example, you have the Franciscans and their commitment to poverty, the service of the poor, but also to teaching and other ministries. And so the, the Dominican order is another one of these orders. And each order has its own charism or its own ministry. So the Dominican order founded by St. Dominic was the ministry of preaching, mm. which that's why we have the sermons of Meister Eckhart. It was his, as a Dominican, he was preaching. These were his sermons and higher learning. And uh, so that's the, of the Dominican order. And would he live, have lived in community, in a monastic community? He would have. He would have lived in a house of Dominicans. And uh, another important thing, too, for him is... Um, just he had a number of administrative duties. So he had to make long journeys on foot to visit the different houses and uh, tend to his responsibilities that he was did under obedience to serve his order, his community, along with the sermons that he was giving at various places and a lot to the nuns of Strasbourg. And would all of the Dominicans have gone to the University of Paris to, to study? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I really don't believe so. I think certainly those who are academically uh, showed signs that they were academically gifted in that way, yes. that would have been very probable they would have gone just because of the central role that held at the time. But not necessarily so, but I, I don't know that. Okay. I've not seen that in the literature. And then he would have been a bit of a shining star at the University of Paris, which led him to become the chair of theology. Exactly. I think when they saw the brilliance of his work, the fact he was invited to take the chair of theology held by Thomas Aquinas, wow. it does give a sense of, of the esteem that he was held in, like his brilliance and his theological acumen and prowess and so on, so very much so. And the University of Paris was also the esteemed university of the time as well. Exactly. So really what he ends up doing 
is using this profound academic knowledge of the scriptures understood at the time, the, the history of the church, St. Augustine, Plotin, all, all of that. And he uses that academic knowledge in the service of mystical awakening. Mm. And so, in a certain sense, we'll see this about him. The distinctions he makes are very metaphysical. We're very, you kind of have to reflect on kind of a philosophical tone. But then he moves directly into the experience. How, what's that like to experience that or to live by that and, and so on. What's interesting about that too, when we were talking about it, Jim, was to know that someone like Teresa of Avila or Julian of Norwich, who we've studied previously, wouldn't have gone to a university. They wouldn't have studied theology in the way that someone like That's Meister right. Eckhart did. Yeah, they weren't allowed to. So, so for example, in the Carmelite order, uh, uh, St. John of the Cross, he had formal theological training in the seminary to be a priest. Patrice of Avila, the women weren't allowed to study in seminary. They weren't. It's very interesting that John of the Cross dedicates one of his books to one of the nuns. And he says to her, you won't understand this teaching in terms of the theology behind it, but you will understand its uh, mystical depth because you're a mystically awakened woman. Mm. See? And so really, and that's why you see in Teresa how astute she was mystically mm -hmm. and how clear her mind was. But she, she didn't have that uh, kind of training that he had in the seminary just because of her. Yeah. And so Meister Eckhart would have retired from that chair before and then gone on to do the sermons? I don't know. I, I, my assumption is it was an annual post. It was held for a certain time. I see. But I don't know how that worked. It was an annual post. Uh, matter of fact, I recall reading somewhere that he he actually held the chair twice. Okay. So, so I, I do think that uh, either they offered it to him again, he turned it down, or he decided he just discerned to move on, or whatever that is. But he was there for a while, then left, and moved into the emphasis emphasis on the German writings, on the sermons, the mystical writings. What was going on at the time in the world? Because in the end, he was brought in front of some kind of court, wasn't he, for his teaching? Yes, and this is another aspect of his teachings, really, that's important. I would say one aspect, let me say first, because I think it takes even a measure. One, of course, is this thing about that, that he wasn't cloistered. In other words, St. Teresa of Avila was cloistered. There was no active ministry. Guigo II, in a ladder of monks, he was a Carthusian hermit. Thomas Merton lived as a cloistered Cistercian monk. Julian lived as an anchorite, as a recluse in solitude. But he, as a friar, as a Dominican friar, he lived his life in the midst of the world. Mm. So one were the demands of the academy of learning, but then these long distances he had to travel on foot to tend to administrative duties and so on. And the significance of that is, is that this deep mystical path that he opens up for us, he, he found it in the world. Mm. And it's very relevant because that gives, bears witness that we can find it in the world. Yes. That we don't have to be in a cloistered monastery to, be, uh, to follow the grace of being a mystically awakened person. And I think that's another piece of the relevance of Meister Eckhart for us mm -hmm. is that. I think also though, although Merton was cloistered, uh, he was very sensitive to the world. He was very engaged with the world and being aware of the world and, and, and so on. So he was very sensitive to that even though he, he stayed within his cloister. Similarly, uh, Teresa of Avila was engaged in the, 
in reforming the church, wasn't she? In a way, she was engaged in the world. She was reforming the church only in the sense of reforming the Carmelite order. Yes. To a return to more simplicity, poverty, and prayer, and then traveling to found houses of the reform. There's another aspect to Eckhart, which is also significant to us, I think. Particularly how he, as a mystically awakened Christian, uh, re related to the doctrinal forces within the church, the trial aspects of the church, I think, is that uh, what happened is kind of complicated in a way. Uh, he was never uh, accused of being a heretic, but some of his teachings were judged by a tribunal as uh, heretical. And specifically, he was being accused of being a pantheist, of teaching that uh, we're God. And uh, what's interesting then, there were a series of trials. As a matter of fact, in one of the volumes of Paulus Press, when we, we'll give the, the people on the podcast access to these volumes, one of them has his uh, defense uh, against his accusers. They, he, he, you get to see how he defended it. And what's interesting about the defense, and this has to do with him being a preacher, and this relates to us on the podcast, and this insight is from one of the main commentators that has helped me, Reiner Sherman, which will also be listed for the students, for the people on the podcast. And Reiner Sherman says what he thinks is at the heart of understanding this trial is the distinction between indicative and imperative language. Indicative language is like the language of the creed, which states what is, like belief. So I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is, and so on. And then there's a history of all those ideas mm. in the Eastern Fathers and the Western Fathers and the whole theological reflection of the belief of the church, the indicative. The, and Merton respected uh, Merton. Eckhart respected that because he was a theologian. He taught it. An imperative thought is not a language that expresses what is, like stating what God is, like a belief. But rather, imperative thought is a language that's addressed directly to the heart of a person in the midst of a great turning. It's the midst of their very uh, daily life, their daily life illumined by faith. It's in the midst of being interiorly awakened towards more unitive, mystical dimensions of, of being aware of, understanding, and responding to God's oneness in our life. And so we see his vocation as a preacher. As a preacher, uh, he was calling to this awakening. He's, he's speaking to our heart and guiding our heart in the process of this awakening. And we can see also how that paralyzed the teachings of Jesus. Jesus didn't give lectures. The, the, what you have in St. Paul, St. Paul was both. Really, Paul lays out Christian theology. He's really the foundation of Christianity, the, the new Adam and, and, and so on. But also we see in St. Paul the mystic, when he was, uh, his conversion experience, he was knocked off his horse in the process of, of capturing Christians. And um, he heard a voice speak to him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you doing this to me? See, so the mystic Christ is revealing to him that he is the very Christians that he's persecuting. And, uh, and Paul says a lot of things like, uh, I honestly believe that the suffering of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. 
So Paul, like Eckhart, was a mystically awakened theologian. Mm. And so you see, you see both. You see both back and forth. But the thing is, is Eckhart held, this was his defense, is that, that by judges in Rome, at these tribunals, these courts, they think I'm speaking indicatively like theology, in which case it would be pantheism. But I'm not. I'm speaking imperatively that we see in all these mystics that we've been studying, all from Teresa, it's the fourth mansion, my heart's being enlarged to divine proportions, for John of the Cross, it's passage through a dark night into this union, for Guigo, it's the ladder of heaven, for Lexio, meditation, prayer leads to contemplation, and God, there's a boundary crossing for God. And he said, he, he honestly believed that they, they didn't understand that they didn't see. There are other complications around it also on a di dispute between the Franciscans and the Dominicans and, and so on. But what's real interesting about Eckhart is he didn't leave the church. Mm. He didn't leave, because I think he understood all of this, these layers of authority and structure, he didn't leave. And I think what's so significant about that for Meister Eckhart is he's very continuous this way to Father Richard Rohr and the New Orthodoxy. Because the New Orthodoxy is not a new orthodoxy, like a new set of beliefs to believe in instead, but it's a return to the original orthodoxy of Jesus, which is the orthodoxy of love. Mm. And this is really the message of Meister Eckhart. He, he understood the complexities of the church. He understood these different, and to be respectful of all of it, but not to get trapped by any of it and just be this consistent, clear voice like that. And that's a message for all of us, because a lot of us have issues with the church, mm -hmm. and for good reason. And everyone has to sort that out in their own way. But how to, that's why with me, where I've been so ahead of my own issues with the church, compl complications. But I came back into the mystical Catholicism. I came back into the Catholicism of these mystics and a whole kind of sacramental, Eucharistic, devotional, unitive thing, of which is in concert with the mystical dimensions of all the world's great religions, because every religion has these levels mm -hmm. of teaching and orthodoxy and teaching and, and so on. But that's another thing for us to consider. And so, Jim, would it be the case that the the works of his that were brought on trial weren't the the theological works he was doing in the university, it was, it was the sermons? That's right. I see. And now, there may be certain passages in the, in the Latin works. Again, I, I don't know, because Eckhart comes shining through. He's more indicative there. But you see the depth to which he understood. The, you know, the theologian is the one who prays, mm -hmm. so saying. And so you see, but I think almost all of them, are, I think, were the, the, the sermons, where you speak of this bold, unitive language uh, like this. And so most of the points are taken from the sermons. And was it the case that you said he didn't leave the church, but I guess also the Dominicans didn't ask him to leave, which, which could have happened also, is that? There's, that's another important point, because it shows how the Dominicans understood him and that they kept him responsible for these duties. Yes. Administrative duties as a spiritual director, the sermons to the nuns. So you could see they had a solid respect for Eckhart. Uh, another interesting thing, too, is that uh, in the light of his condemnation, there was a mystic, we might look at them later, to um, uh, fellow Dominicans who had a deep respect for Eckhart. 
a deep respect for Eckhart. And, uh, but they also saw how less refined people were misunderstanding him. And they thought he was saying that we were God. And so what these other, other mystics have done is they leave the boldness of Eckhart, but they translate it into pastoral terms mm. to make it more accessible. So it's less subject to those misunderstandings like that. So he was pushing the boundaries into the mystical, but in a very deliberate way, he, and he wasn't going to pull back from that in the end. Exactly. By the way, one of those mystics I'm speaking of, Johannes Toller and Henry Suso, two beautiful mystics. And also, later we might look at Roisbrook, the Flemish mystic Roisbrook, and uh, they had this profound respect for Eckhart, but the, all of them put it in these more pastoral terms so it's less subject to those misunderstandings but on purpose he was pushing the Eckhart was pushing the edges of language mm. see he was trying to um, go, go be all, like transconceptual realizations and finding a language for that and uh, and that's the the risk of Meister Eckhart as a matter of fact that's a good place to read this quote uh, Meister Eckhart this is Reiner Sherman again Sherman says, speaking of Eckhart's language, his sermons, each line of Meister Eckhart testifies to an uneasiness about the fundamental inadequacy of language when confronted by the joy without a cause. See, Eckhart asks, what is the joy that death does not have the power to destroy, and how can we discover it? See, And so the uneasiness of trying to put words to that joy without a cause. There are perhaps illogical murmurings which mobilize deeper forces in us than does the rigor of constructed discourse. You see this also, I think, in the poetry of John of the Cross and also in other traditions in the poetry of Rumi in other poetic traditions where there's certain illogical murmurings, like, more like music, which awakens this deep stirring inside of us that are just... Like, how do we find words to bear witness? To, not to explain it because it's not explainable. Mm -hmm. But what's the language that doesn't break the, the depth of the union, but a kind of language that moves with the rhythms of the union itself? It's like the monks in the monasteries chanting the Psalms. There's something about the rhythm of chanting. Someone once said that uh, when we sing a hymn, we sing a joyful hymn unto the Lord. But when we chant, we deepen our capacity to listen. And I think Eckhart's like that, mm. too. I think Eckhart's language is highly evocative. It's a language of listen. Meister Eckhart undertakes the risk of speculative mysticism, that is, using philosophical, metaphysical language and so on. Explaining under a philosophical guise the overwhelming closeness of the origin beyond God that his clothing is full of holes, suggests to us the fire that consumed him. The struggle for the right concept, when it has recourse to paradox, turns into combat, and after reasonings and commentaries, at last invites silence. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice thing. I think the, the, the depth of Eckhart is the silence that silences us mm. with like wordless amazement or gratitude like that, yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. It is. Also, what amazes me about this, and I think of Merton too, 
How mysterious is it God raises up people like this, whom God graces with the gift of putting words to such things? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, go figure. Like, where's, where's <laughs> that coming from? It's like one of the God's graces to all of us, I think. It is amazing how the church bureaucracy can't track with them. You know, like a yeah. lot of these mystics had, had trouble with the, the church. But I think the issue is this. First of all, in the depth of the hierarchy, they do track with them. Because mm. some of these bishops, archbishops, they're big people of deep prayer. But the thing about the mystics is they can't control it. Because if, it, if it's not definable, then it's like, like proof text in Scripture, like approaching Scripture in that way. If it's not controllable, then uh, there's a need to rein it in mm -hmm. see, to keep it controllable. I think that's part of the seduction of empire, like theological empire. And you get that greatest tension in, in, in the church. So he navigated that. He was aware of it. He navigated that with a clear mind and uh, one of his gifts, I think. Do you think he was upset by the trials? I do. Yeah. You can understand it. it take the edge off your day. Yes. You know, and it went on and on and on and on. Really? But that's the point where this, when we see as, as, as soon as we get defensive, where we ourselves become part of the problem. Mm. He wasn't defend, there's nothing to defend because mm. he's not, he's not, he's not proclaiming anything that's a fact. He's, he's evoking a realization that's beyond words. Mm -hmm. And so at the human level, of course, he, he saw it. He had, it's one of the things he had, to, he had to do. We all have things to deal with, and he dealt with it. But I think he was, because he himself not just spoke of, but was himself stabilized in the very oneness of which he speaks. Yeah. The depth of himself, he was at peace. Matter of fact, he died on his way to one of the trials. So there was, was there ever a verdict on him? Or? There was. They, there, several statements were claimed to be heretical. Okay. But uh, he died before the that was proclaimed. He never heard. He yeah. never heard the condemnation of those teachings. Has his teaching remained remained central in the Catholic tradition? Well, I, well, it depends. First of all, for the main, for the widespread breadth of the Catholic tradition, it doesn't because no one even knows who he is. Okay. Because most Catholic signatures don't even know who mystics are. Yes. So they don't consider. But for those who are into theological, speculative, prayerful things. He uh, has had a, I think what it is, is there's people that are a more conservative bent that for those reasons consider they're not comfortable with him. But there are people like the nuns who are been th or have been and are thrilled and amazed and grateful, you know, for the beauty and depth of Eckhart's teaching. He's very similar to Merton that way. Mm -hmm. And also I think to Richard Rohr as contemplative teachers. Yes. Like that, yeah. yeah. And so anyway, that's how I see him. Would the yeah. Dominicans still celebrate him as one of their, they, go, they their greatest do. teachers? Yeah. They, as a matter of fact, there was an audience of several Dominicans with Pope John Paul, the previous Pope. And, uh, and it, to the Dominicans, he went on record as saying, our brother, Meister Eckhart. Oh, wow. And so when you really sift it all out and look at what he was saying and put it into a context, and so people of a range of, based on where they stand themselves on their own comfort level with uh, mystical language and all that. So. Wonderful. But, but it pertains to us because we're trying to get beyond our own definitions. We're to be respectful of them, these formulations, and we're trying to find our way into a, a oneness of infinity that's translating us into itself unexplainably. 
And Eckhart's putting words to that. Yes. And helping us how to understand it and how to cooperate with it. And I think that's where the relevance is for us in the podcast. Yes. Too. Because as we listen to these talks, uh, it just brings up quite, well, what about this and what about, we have to do that. But when it, when it all settles down, all the whatabouts <laughs> see, are, are transcended by the invitation to listen more deeply to the intimacy of the unexplainable, like a oneness and live by. And then when you're translated into it, then you can speak out of it, mm -hmm. like Eckhart did, mm -hmm. which is really every time we speak out of love, every time we speak out of helping people, every time we speak out of our own devotional sincerity, spiritual direction, uh, like that. Good. It's amazing the way people like that have an impact on the world, like the way the nuns so yes. lovingly copied his work to, be, to yeah. be carried forward. It is. And I also think how, this is true deep psychotherapy too, but also a spiritual direction, how a, a contemplatively grounded spiritual director can release a person from certain like cul-de-sacs, they can't find their way out. Mm -hmm. And that they've helped them find a language that's more gracious or spacious or inclusive or open that has can have such a healing effect on a seeker's life, I think. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Jim, you called Eckhart a more of a theological mystic, and I, I, I wondered if you'd just talk a little bit about the difference between the nuptial mystics we've studied and someone like Eckhart. I, I think the, the nuptial mystics is St. John of the Cross, mm -hmm. although each of these nuptial they're both. So they're always both, there's a pri primacy. Um, uh, St. John of the Cross, uh, uh, Teresa of Avila, certainly Julianne of Norwich, uh, certainly in a very deep, significant way, also uh, Guigo II, not as explicitly, but they see the intimacy of marital love as the primary metaphor that helps understand what God, a union that God realized, brings us to realize. It's nuptial in that it's, it's really a teaching on the primacy of love. And so therefore, uh, what we have with, with this love language in terms of interfaith dialogue, these nuptial mystics are, are much, are very close to the Sufi tradition, to this love, to this love tradition. And also very close in deep yoga to the bhakti yoga, this, the Bhagavad Gita, this devotional love path. Eckhart 
is, is a mysticism of the mind, transconceptual mind. And therefore, there's a deeper affinity between him and Buddhism mm. on mind. I have a book here by D.T. Suzuki, the Zen scholar, and he points out that he is Meister Eckhart being enlightened. And being enlightened. So you see this, you see, when you look for these inner faith uh, uh, affinities, yes. in terms of contemplative ecumenism, there is that aspect to this. Thank you for pointing that out. That's that's quite amazing. It's uh, uh, what's true is true is true and can be discovered. Exactly. And, yeah. But but again, whichever side is emphasized, the other one's always there. For example, there's a lovely little line in Eckhart on love. He says, "I honestly believe if we would just ground ourselves in love, it would clarify all these concerns." He has a lot of he has a lot of statements like that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but he doesn't use that metaphor like like Teresa does so powerfully of the exactly. And notice John of the Cross does both because he had the theology, and so he talks about substantial union and effective union. He has all that, mm -hmm. but really, when you get into the poetry and his actual teachings, he's a nuptial. It's really this this love. I'm so glad you mentioned Meister Eckhart uh, being more aligned with the teachings of Buddhism and having studied Meister Eckhart through you a little bit, uh, I did wonder, was, would he have been exposed to Buddhism? Because it does sound so similar. No, I, I don't think so. You know, there's a lovely book, we might look at Marcus Borg, who is a, a, a scripture scholar and um, passed away now, but he wrote, a, he wrote meeting, the, meeting Jesus again for the first time and other things. I used to go up to his church in Portland, Oregon, uh, I think. His wife, I think, was a priest there. But... Um, he has a lovely book where, uh, called Jesus and Buddha. And so on one page is the saying of Jesus, and on the other page is the saying of Buddha. Mm. And they're identical. Oh, wow. And he says, how do we account for this? Since there's no, uh, as some people claim that Jesus traveled to India and had exposure to it, but ling linguistically that doesn't hold up. There's very little evidence in the language of Jesus that shows he's been influenced by Veda teachings or Buddhist teachings. He said, the reason is, the affinity, is Jesus and the Buddha discovered the same spiritual landscape. Mm. And the same spiritual landscape is, which is relevant actually to this, I think, I, if I can remember it, is that uh, the, both Jesus and the Buddha saw that the problem is ignorance, what the Buddha called ignorance. And Jesus called it blindness. Mm. That is, is being blind to the infinite love of God giving itself away as every breath and heartbeat. Jesus said, you have eyes to see, but you don't see. There's your God-given capacity to see the God-given nature standing up and sitting down. And you don't, this is the source of all your sorrow. This is the source of all your confusion. And so the prayer becomes, Lord, that I might see. Mm. And same way with the Buddha, in the whole journey, in the whole story of the Buddha is the great deliverance of nirvana is being delivered from this. So is, is ignorance. Next, the thing about ignorance is that this ignorance intensifies clinging and the clinging intensifies the pain and the confusion mm. trying to have. And, uh, and the cure for both is to let go. And so you see these affinities between these two traditions meet at that level and, and uh, I think that's, re that's relevant to understanding how Merton saw the dialogue Merton had with Buddhism mm -hmm. yes. and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh 
coming to visit him and going to see the Dalai Lama just before he died. And also uh, as deep as fact with mystical Islam uh, on, with, with the Sufis and, and so on. It helps to understand what Merton, I think Merton saw this. Yes. Yeah. And that really helps to understand Eckhart as well because he has a method he has a method to help us with letting go. Is that is that right? Yeah. So so even though he didn't explicitly address this issue because he didn't historically have exposure to it, mm-hmm. it is as if he had first-hand exposure to Buddhists and Hindus. And so he, if he did, he would have responded. But he gives us a stance out of which contemplative ecumenical dialogue builds a basis for it to meet each, to meet each other. Thomas Merton says somewhere, the unfortunate thing about a lot of Christian missionary work is the failure of the Christian missionaries to realize the people that were converting were in some instances were as or more holy than they were. Mm. See, And it's a breaking open of tribal intensities. And I think Eckhart's very good about breaking open tribal intensities and at the same time respecting the role that these, these, these distinctions have and it's not being disrespectful to anything. So to, to move on, so what we have then, also in Eckhart then, this is where the mystical part becomes explicit, is that Mer- uh, Eckhart will be looking at this in the talks. We might say that on this earth, our experience of understanding and response to God is veiled. Is veiled. So it's veiled in our minds through uh, the words and insights and how we read through the power of the Spirit in our hearts, we're given an interior understanding through our mind. It's veiled in our emotions, but it's veiled as consolations. We're stirred with affect. It's veiled as, and so on, like we'll be looking at all of this. But when we die and pass through the veil of death, we go from a veiled to unveiled union. The union's already divinely saturated existence, but it's veiled, we don't see it, except in this veiled way through faith. But through all eternity, it'll be unveiled. It will be living as God's life, God's own life, as completely as God lives God's own life, in our eternal nothingness without God in the light of day. But what, what Eckhart is also saying that with, what happens with some people is that God doesn't wait until we're dead to begin to give us unveiled union, and that's the mystical thing. See, that you're already being led into this unveiled union beyond thought, beyond words, beyond emotions, and so on. Now this unveiled union, which is this unitive mystical consciousness, itself is veiled because it's obscure. It's obscure, even to the mystic to who is being uh, drawn into this, the, their own reflective ego, they're beyond what their own ego can comprehend. Like this. And so it's, it's veiled, but it's also luminous and lucid, clear, bright, and true. And the person yields to it, and they're transformed in it. And I think that's what makes them a teacher. Mm. I think this one is very close to the Hindu understanding of the guru. It's the one who's been metamorphosized in this unitive experience where Brahman and Atman are one. And they're also given the gift of speaking of it in a way that helps us find it too. And so this, these mystic teachers were studying the podcast, I think this is a way of understanding who they are, mm-hmm. that, and uh, so on. Do we have a sense of how uh, Meister Eckhart 
came upon this transformed consciousness, you know, with Teresa and John of the Cross, there's stories that are directly related to that. But Teresa tells us in her life, she tells us in detail. Yes. We know in John of the Cross how through the dark night of what he did. Uh, Merton tells us in his own life, Seven Story Mountain online. But uh, we, we don't know how he mm. Eckhart came. He doesn't, as far as I'm aware of, mm-hmm. I'm not aware of any passage where he goes into the foundations of his own way. He just bears witness that he's clearly been transformed in it. Yes. But he, but he doesn't. That's uh, true of a number of these mystics too, but they don't provide that. Well, I guess too, because his work was carried forward by the nuns through the sermons. No one, no one sat down and asked him to write his, you know, his autobiographical No, 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 no one did. Yeah. Yeah, nobody. See, so we, we really don't know whether, as a young man, why did he enter the Dominicans in the first place? Yes. And did the quickening already begin? Or did it begin when he took his vows? I mean, it's like... Or did it begin studying theology? And why he studied theology, it we, we just don't know at that, that level. Like but he clearly bears witness to it in the teaching. He bears witness, yeah. exactly. So what he does, so this is the vision of Meister Eckhart then. This is the tone of it. So what he does, he says, well, this being so, you'll be understanding life in these terms. Then what is the path? or the way of life, along which, uh, put it this way, let's say looking at life in this way is the vision, this luminous vision. And this luminous vision of these sensibilities and sensitivities, they illumine the path. The path is the way of life along which he invites us to follow him. Because it's along this path that this unit of experience that happened to Eckhart can happen to us. Uh, to the degree that God so grants. And so the path of Meister Eckhart then see, is this way of life. And the thing about Meister Eckhart is significant for him is that whereas the mystics we've been studying so far, they focus on prayer and how we conduct ourselves in contemplative prayer. So for example, in the contemplative dimensions of prayer in the cloud of unknowing, you ground yourself in your word when a thought arises, you're aware of the thought arising, but you don't think about the thought that arises. Rather, you re-ground yourself in the word to keep your taproot of your heart grounded in what's beyond thought, beyond words, like this. So Eckhart is suggesting that same basic strategy. There's a way we can learn to do that all day long. He's suggesting a certain attitude toward the circumstances of the day where we catch ourselves getting reactive. We catch ourselves believing that the conditions I'm in have the authority to name who I am, where the outcome of the present project has the authority. And he gives a strategy to take a deep breath, remind ourselves that only this infinite presence of God has the authority to name who we are. And little by little by little, which he calls this path of detachment, that is this being, or to be, Galazenheit, uh, to be released, mm. It's being released from the hindrances. And this is going to lead us to what he calls the birth of the word and the soul. That once I'm detached, I, I, I live this detached life, I experientially, in the birth of the word and the soul, I experience God welling up in and as the details of the day. Mm. I see that God's the infinity of the immediacy of what's happening. 
and the immediacy of what's happening is a concrete immediacy of the infinity of God. So the birth and the word and the soul is one of his, like the fruition of the fruit of detachment. And then that's going to lead to a final sense, which we'll be looking at in the talks, is breakthrough into the Godhead beyond God. So that's the tone of Meister Eckhart. Wow. So just to repeat back the the worldview, this sense of living in union with God, but that we we can only experience, we generally experience it in veiled ways. Yeah. But once we're dead, it, it will be revealed and that there's, there's ways that we can take a stance in our lives that might bring on that revelation or, uh, or an openness to that revelation that we might experience it while we're still alive. That's the general worldview of these mystics. Would that, is that true? Yeah, yeah let's, let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. Yeah. Let's say we'll be walking through all this in the sessions. So let's say on this earth, the veiled way, is as our, our thoughts, our memory, our feelings, and so on, illumined by grace. And, and, it's, and it's veiled in grace, but it's like a living certainty in our heart, yes. Marcella, a primitive inner assurance, a guiding light that God is with us. And that, that veiled way, lived and shared with others, is efficacious unto holiness. But when we die and pass through the veil of death, it's unveiled. Mm-hmm. It's gone. So what he's suggesting is in the midst of the veiled ways, there's the opening up of the unveiled, mm-hmm. see, which is the mystical uh, dimension. Yes. And that mystical dimension that liberates us from the veils, returns us to being radically present in the veils because we, we're living our life. Yes. You know, we, we talk and move and walk and like this. So that's, this is Eckhart's fidelity to his path is giving us the sermons. Yes. Or like St. Teresa of Avila in the Seventh Mansion. She says, in the end, the only question left for such a person is how can I be helpful? Mm-hmm. It circles back around to the divinity of ordinary things. Yes. You know, to life deeply realized. And then uh, Eckhart, carrying this worldview of the mystics, offers us a unique path that, that was off, given to him as a way to maybe open ourselves to this unveiled experience. Yes. Let's say this. Say in the podcast, each of these mystics is sharing his or her own unique way of bearing witness to how they realize it and the the, the path that they suggest that we might realize it. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're doing that to help us find our own unique way. Because mm-hmm. how's it unfolding in me in a way that's faithful to this path? Yes. But the the lovely thing about the podcast is we look across mystics, mm-hmm. we can see that each one in his or her own way, there's a continuous thread. That they all, so we're looking for the things they all share in common. Yes. And each one is uniquely sharing because it's how they each uniquely experienced it. Yes. And then they're suggesting that we're part of that lineage. You know, we're woven into that lineage. Yes. I was going to say it's helpful to have an opportunity to learn about and practice these different kind of methods. And so for this season, it's going to be a little bit like Guigo and the the cloud of unknowing where where there is a method that we could practice in our lives. Yeah. Exactly. I'd like to share one last thing here I think is helpful too and important, especially with Eckhart. And personally how I experienced this, how I was introduced to Eckhart, 
And also to clarify about the tone that we're taking in the podcast. Uh, when I uh, read Merton in the ninth grade, it had such a deep effect on me. And uh, I graduated from high school and entered and lived there in the community and got to sit with him personally. And I saw him as a living mystic. I just saw him as he held the lineage of the Christian mystical tradition. And he's the one who led me into these classical texts that we've been studying here. John of the Cross, we goes through him. And uh, so I was deeply touched, I think, in the monastery by John of the Cross, most of all, and the cloud. And um, uh, I read Teresa. I did read her, but I, I didn't really take to her right away for some reason. It wasn't until later, some time later, actually, that I was invited with Carolyn Mace to come to Avila with her to give a retreat in Avila, Spain, where Teresa of Avila lived. And that got me immersed in Teresa. And then it just kind of caught hold for me uh, about Teresa. And the same way when I read Meister Eckhart, uh, I, I couldn't quite get a handle on what he was saying. So I, I could tell he said beautiful things. For example, he says the eye, E-Y-E, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. I like that. But I couldn't see, like John of the Cross, I couldn't see where it fit into a context or a picture like this. Even though when I was first started reading John of the Cross, he just took to me right away, like Merton did. And uh, also when I read The Cloud, I took to it right away. But when I, when I read Teresa, at first I didn't take to her at all for some reason. It wasn't until years later that uh, when Carolyn Mace invited me to come to Avila to give retreats, John of the Cross and Teresa, that's what really immersed me in Teresa and... Uh, so it's interesting how these mystics, there's a certain timing about where we are in our own life, about what kind of, what we resonate with. And so with Eckhart, when I read Eckhart, I just access to one translation at the time, uh, I could tell he said beautiful things. You know, for example, he says the eye, the E-Y-E, the eye, the eye with which I see God is the eye with God, which God sees me. I like that. <laughs> but I couldn't see how it fit his teachings seemed so metaphysical. Mm. And even though I was studying metaphysics in the monastery, Aquinas and Duns Scotus and so on, I, I, just, I just couldn't see it. But years later, after I got married and I was in my doctoral studies for my PhD really in psychology, I started reading commentaries on Eckhart. And we're gonna list those in the sources, academic commentaries. And I just, I really immersed myself in those. And, uh, that's where I got into Eckhart and started giving retreats on Meister Eckhart and so on. So I, I want to say this, though, and this has to do with the podcast. Let's say, like Reiner Sherman says, he, he risked the guy under the guise of speculative mysticism, under the guise of this metaphysical language, which we'll look at, the joy without a cause. And what we're after here in the podcast is the joy without a cause. So I'm going to be emphasizing that when we hear Eckhart say things, we'll hear it and give examples where we can say, I've experienced that. Mm. I've experienced that. Or I think what Eckhart is doing, he's helping me find a language to understand that. And he's also providing a way that I can deepen it. That's the emphasis here. So I'm emphasizing this kind of experiential simplicity to it. And uh, I think two other sources, which we'll be mentioning here, one is the little book, Cyprian Smith, The Way of Paradox, in which he does that very much. Beautiful, 
Uh, very similar to what we're hoping to do here. Also, uh, Matthew Fox, when he came out with his translation of the, of the sermons of Meister Eckhart in the introduction, he starts this idea of instead of the church's emphasis on original sin, it was Eckhart's emphasis on the original blessing, mm. which is really true. And I think what Matthew Fox did there was a pastoral blessing, like Richard Rohr does, like pastoral accessibility. Mm -hmm. like this. And he has another book more recently, I think it's, I think it's Meister Eckhart, uh, the Warrior of God in Our Times. I think I think that's the title. It'll be listed. And what he does is he he imagines Meister Eckhart meeting, uh, having a talk with Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. the Buddhist. And then he imagines him having a talk with Abraham Hasha Heschel, or I think it might be Buber. And what he tries to show is the timeless lineage of these traditions. Uh, to as, as accessibility. And in a way, that's what I'm trying to do here. Mm -hmm. I'm In the podcast, I'm giving emphasis to make this as accessible and invitational and heartfelt as real. Then if, if th th those who are so inclined, mm -hmm. we'll talk about this later in the series, if you want to start doing a more in-depth study of Eckhart, you can do that. I want to get some guidelines for that. Almost like doing deep Bible study, getting into the Word. Take an in-depth commentary, the sermons, a journal, and you kind of feel called like a kind of interior lexio of getting more into this, uh, these other dimensions of his metaphysical language that he uses to express these things. And by the way, I'll say one last thing to this to of all the mystics, but especially Eckhart. He's just too much. Mm. Really, and we have to just let him be too much. <laughs> You know what I mean? We have yeah. to let him be too much. But as long as you s just stay with him and be patient with yourself, you, you start getting little glimmers, like connecting the dots, you know, and you stay with him. You might, and if, if probably each person listening to the podcast is his or her own mystic they most might want to sit with and have through their, one of their teachers. But for me, Eckhart's certainly been one of mine. So I'm very pleased to be able to share it with people. Uh, yeah. How wonderful. So, Jim, just uh, building on what you've just said, that if you were to take the sermons by themselves, they're, they're quite challenging to read. They, they are. Yeah. A lot of metaphysical language. and They're beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, and we're going to read some. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, oh, to read passages so you get a feeling of how he talks. Yes. And then I'm going to try to open it up to make it accessible. Yes. But just the sermons all by itself. So I think you can read it and be touched by the poetics of it. Mm -hmm. You can be touched by, you have to skip whole paragraphs, like what in the hell is that mean? <laughs> but then all of a sudden there's like three or four sentences, you want to write it out, like boy, that's, that's, and if you stay with it, that grows. But the commentaries really help Yes. with that, if you're inclined to pursue it at that level. That's true of all the mystics we're looking at, really. So you'll give us a beautiful taste of his actual words, but then you're going to bring in these real world, world examples, help ground it yeah. in in life today in our own context. Yeah. And so and that's what I've done. Yeah. In, that's what I've done in all, all these of podcasts. Yes, that's, that's that's my pedagogy, really. Yes. I quote, and then I offer practical examples or metaphors, and to try to line ourselves up, we're putting a language to something mm -hmm. that intimately uh, shines and shimmers inside of us but how to talk about it or how to explore it. And I think it's what the podcasts are about. Yes, wonderful. Well, I'm very excited about this season too. And uh, just very grateful, Jim, for you and your teaching and the way you open up these mystics and these paths to us, all us would-be mystics out here. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so here we go, season seven. Season seven. And Corey in the background, as always, helping us along. And Corey will be um, updating those resources so that so that people can find everything you've mentioned today in the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.